mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, Ohio Secretary of State and U.S. Senate candidate Frank LaRose, who made a stop in Findlay on Friday, joins us in the studio for a sit-down to discuss that campaign. Also this morning, Flag City Honor Flight is planning another busy year in 2024, and while the community has always been very generous with their financial support, they also need a lot of volunteer help to make those flights happen. And we'll get the latest 4-H news from the Hancock County OSU Extension. Lauren Berner kitzler will be here to tell us what's happening. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Monday, January 8th, 2024. This is important stuff to know, first thing out of the gate this morning. The average, and especially on a Monday, the average afternoon slump starts at 3 o'clock exactly. According to a new survey, for those who experience a loss of motivation or lack of energy in the afternoon, that afternoon slump begins at 3 o'clock on the nose and lasts for nearly 29 minutes. So from 3 to 3.29 p.m., that's when we have that afternoon slump. Your mileage may vary, of course, but I thought it was interesting. How does that compare to your experience? Is it around 3 o'clock? 21% of the 2,000 Americans surveyed on this, half of them, say that there is a specific day of the week when they are most more likely to experience an afternoon slump than others. Interestingly, it is not Monday. Now, you would think maybe Monday would be the day when you'd have an afternoon slump after the long weekend and so on, uh, heading back to work. You'd think Monday would be the day. But no, for most, Tuesday is the most common afternoon slump-inducing day. And I have found that to be true in my own experience. Monday, I'm usually pretty good uh, on Monday. It is Tuesday when the lack of sleep over the weekend catches up with me. I don't know why that is. Uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, some doctor could, uh, you know, explain it to me, some physiologist. (laughs) Somebody who understands these things could explain it to me scientifically. But that's what I have found to be true in my own experience. So... Three o'clock on a Tuesday is the absolute worst time to try and confront a coworker. Is what I'm hearing on that. <laughs> You've got something you need to bring up with a coworker. You avoid three o'clock on Tuesday. It's not going to go well. That's the uh, moral of that story, I guess. Or just three o'clock in general every day of the week, just to be on the safe side. This is kind of interesting. Among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, right around the end of the year slash beginning of the new year, we get these data points uh, every year. And uh, this is the list of where Americans are moving. Where are Americans moving? Uh, They break it down by generation. Uh, this uh, data from Storage Cafe, which is, I, I'm guessing, a, uh, a storage unit company. I'm not familiar with Storage Cafe. But anyway, that's the uh, company that put together this data. Gen Zers are heading to Connecticut, Washington, D.C., and North Carolina. That's where the most Generation Z movers are heading. 
Millennials, meanwhile, are going to Texas, Georgia, and Florida. Florida also at the top of the list for Gen Xers, Boomers, and the Silent Generation. And I thought this was interesting on a related note. This is a separate story from Business Insider. This, uh, this shifting demographic in who is moving to the Sunshine State. I mean, typically we think baby boomers and older folks flock to retire in Florida, but they have recently been overtaken by this younger set. Uh, more than 29% of the 739,000 people who relocated to Florida in 21 and 22, 2021 and 2022, more than 29% of all of those who moved into Florida were millennials. Uh, boomers made up 25% and Gen Zers at 21%. So it's the younger people that are moving in greater numbers to Florida than are the older people. Uh, part of that... Uh, is is a shifting demographic, a shifting mindset. The other part is that most of the old people are already there, <laughs> so they can't they can't move there twice. Um, and of course, there are fewer in the boomer generation that are moving at this point. We're losing the boomer generation, and so there are just fewer of them out there, numbers wise. So you knew that that shift was going to take place eventually. In any event, uh, Florida is at the top of the list for Gen Xers, um, also near the top of the list for millennials, as well as boomers in the silent generation. California experiencing the greatest net loss of millennials, Gen Xers, and boomers. The silent generation is leaving New York, and Gen Zers are heading out of New Jersey. That is the net uh, top net loss states. Among movers. So that is the uh, latest data. U-Haul puts this out, and I think Mayflower uh, puts out their survey. This from Storage Cafe. So everybody has their uh, data, but a lot of it is typically very similar. So kind of interesting there. Uh, let's see. Now, one of the big things going on this week, happening in Las Vegas, the annual Consumer Electronics Show. This week we're going to get updates from CES because it's always interesting. This is like the be-all and end-all for the tech industry. And technology is so integral to our lives, so integrated into our lives these days that it is important, really, to pay attention to what's going on at the Consumer Electronics Show. Um, And every year, they have incredible next generation technology it's like going to a car show and you see the concept cars you don't know whether they'll actually ever make it to market but it's interesting to dream at what you know may evolve out of those this is the same kind of thing with technology you see all of this incredible uh dreamer dreaming type technology that may never actually make it in the form that you see it to the market but uh, uh will be the basis of technology that will uh, be integral to our lives moving forward. Anyway, and then there are others that are just fun. You know, the people create, companies create fun things in technology just because they can. This, I think, falls into that category. It says here, if you have ever looked at your toilet and wished you could pair it with your Alexa, <laughs> dream no more. Kohler has a new device 
that can sync with your digital assistant and has a host of other amenities like LED lighting and adjustable temperature blow-drying feature (laughs) and more. Uh, The slim design seat also boasts a UV light to rid your toilet of bacteria, uh, read your toilet of bacteria once a day. Uh, the bathroom fixture company plans to unveil its tech-enhanced throne at this year's Consumer Electronics Show. The Pure Wash E930 uh, has a range of water pressures from a kid-safe spray to a high-pressure boost mode. <laughs> the cost, $2,149 for this bidet. High-tech bidet. I saw that, and I'm thinking to myself, it syncs with your Alexa. If I'm, if Google and Amazon don't already know enough about you, that's <laughs> that's information that I don't think they need <laughs> to know about me. You know what I? I'm not opposed to the idea of a bidet. I think they're very convenient. It's kind of, but I'm not sure that I need one connected to my smart home. I don't think Google needs to know that much about me. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying, that's... Uh, and a couple of other items here. This is uh, kind of interesting this time of year. What are most people doing? They are de-Christmasing after the holiday. Have you taken down your decorations? This always becomes a big um, item of debate this time of year. When to take down your Christmas decorations. Uh, Saturday was the 12th day of Christmas, the Epiphany. And so a lot of people de-Christmas their homes right around that time. According to an article in the Wall Street Journal, though, there is a growing number of people who are bucking the trend of de-Christmasing and keeping their Christmas trees up year-round. And this includes some home decorators. Portia Gorman is one of those. She says her Christmas tree stays up throughout the year. Now she changes her decorations out with all of the seasons. Uh, she'll have, you know, hearts and pink stuff uh, for Valentine's Day. Patriotic. It has a patriotic motif come the 4th of July and so on and so forth. She says she keeps, she spends about $600 a year keeping her tree changed, you know, with the uh, different decorations for the seasons. Um, she has a summer theme with uh, sandal ornaments and plastic fish. <laughs> Um, historical figurines that she hangs on the tree to commemorate Black History Month and so on. So lots of ideas that you can do with your uh, Christmas tree. Of course, uh, this obviously only works with artificial trees. Uh, you don't want to keep your real tree up year-round, but you get the idea. So if you don't want to take your tree down, apparently you don't have to, and it is just fine. And I thought this was interesting. Uh, Talk about one of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day to get your morning started. (laughs) A pizzeria in Naples has what? Now, you know that there is an ongoing debate in this country about certain pizza toppings, namely pineapple. Does it do pineapple on pizza? Yay or nay? You ask 100 people, you get very... uh, uh, very strong responses. Everybody has a very strong opinion on this. Apparently, this is new in Italy, but a pizzeria in Naples has taken to adding pineapple to their pizzas. 
And Italians, as it turns out, are just as divided as Americans over the controversial toppings. Um, Some embrace it. Some think it's akin to poisoning a pizza. Um, But uh, the uh, owner of the pizzeria, Gino Sorbio, said while he initially received backlash on social media, more and more customers have been enjoying a slice of pineapple pizza. Now, it should be pointed out that there are a number of rather odd pizza toppings that actually are very much accepted in Italy, including chopped pistachios, powdered olives, and mozzarella foam. So, I mean, due respect to the folks in Italy... Kind of weird on their pizza anyway. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Monday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchak. Your WTOL 11 weather. Partly to mostly cloudy skies expected today. A high in the mid-30s. Snow and rain possible tonight. A low in the low 30s. Finley Mayor Christina Mern has requested a meeting with Finley City Council to discuss economic development strategies for 2024. We're really fortunate that our community has been so prosperous. And we're seeing significant investment. However, you know, we need to continue to make sure that we're looking at all resources and positioning our community as best we can to continue to attract and retain top talent as well as businesses. The meeting will be held on Wednesday afternoon in City Council Chambers. For the past nine years now, the city of Finley has been named America's top micropolitan community by Site Selection magazine. Get more on our website. A federal lawsuit has been filed over Ohio's new Social Media Parental Notification Act. The lawsuit is from a company that represents Meta, TikTok, and other tech companies. It argues the law is unconstitutional because it restricts ideas that children are exposed to. In a statement, Lieutenant Governor John Husted says, in part, quote, This lawsuit is cowardly but not unexpected. The law simply requires parental consent before children under the age of 16 can sign up on social media and other online platforms. I'm Yolanda Harris. A Northwest Ohio woman hopes to be the first openly transgender person elected to the Ohio House of Representatives. Ariane Chowdhury is running as the Democratic candidate against State Representative Angela King. King currently holds the seat in Ohio's 84th district, which is just south of Lima. She also sponsored the controversial drag ban bill, along with Representative from Sylvania Josh Williams. Chowdhury moved to Ohio from Virginia in 2014. She founded the Northwest Ohio Trans Advocacy. This is her first time running for office. WTOL 11's Amanda Fay reporting. Liberty Benton Local Schools says it has proudly preserved and displayed the lettering of the old gymnasium floor from the 1959 portion of their original elementary and middle school. The old gym floor now adorns the north wall of the high school gymnasium. The school district thanks those who helped make this project possible. See some pictures in this story on our website. And remember, you can always get more news online at WFIN.com. So now to our cover story this morning, current Ohio Secretary of State and U.S. Senate candidate Frank LaRose made a stop in Findlay on Friday. While he was here, he joined us in the studio for a sit-down to discuss that campaign. 
Mr. Secretary, thanks very much for uh, dropping by and making some time in your uh, schedule for us uh, today. Uh, good to see you. Thanks Glad to be back in Flag City, USA. Just spoke <laughs> to the county GOP and having a great time. As we, Yeah, the uh, highlight of your visit uh, here to uh, Finley today is an address to county Republicans at the uh, first Friday luncheon. You were at that event right before uh, coming here. Kind of give us a recap of your message for the benefit of those who couldn't attend. Yeah, so a little bit of a, just making sure people know my, my background and, and uh, for a lot of folks in the room. It was a review. A lot of dear friends here in Finley, but uh, I grew up in Akron. I had a great upbringing. I grew up working on a farm, was part of the Boy Scouts. Uh, That was really my inspiration to serve. My Boy Scout leader was a World War II veteran, and uh, he told us stories around the campfire about liberating a concentration camp. And so I knew I wanted to be like Bill Miller when I grew up. So I enlisted in the army when I was 18. And that, uh, along with my, my faith and, and family upbringing, is, is kind of what, what forms who I am today. I served for 10 years in uniform, got to serve on the U.S.-Mexican border as part of a counter-narcotics task force. And so when some candidates talk about border security, they may go down there for a photo op or a field trip. For me, I lived it. And um, also had the chance to become a Green Beret. And I still do that today. I'm a reservist. There's certain weekends when I get to be Sergeant First Class LaRose instead of Secretary of State LaRose. I look forward to those. But uh, during my time on active duty, I served in Iraq, served in Kosovo, really all over the world. And uh, it was a great experience. But at 28, decided it was time to get a formal education. I went to Ohio State, earned a business degree, and then went on to run for the state Senate, now Secretary of State. The other thing I was talking about is that we've got a country to save. This is not hyperbole at this point. It's not exaggeration. Uh, We're in jeopardy of being the first generation to leave this country weaker, poorer, and less secure. And I'll be darned if that'll happen on our watch. And so that's really why I'm running for the U.S. Senate, so we can defeat Sherrod Brown this year and put our country back on track. Your political background, your political resume in this Senate campaign actually bears, I thought it was interesting, kind of a, a striking resemblance to the man you are hoping to replace. Sherrod Brown also spent uh, time in the state legislature and as Secretary of State uh, before uh, moving on to uh, Washington. But that was then and this is now. And it does seem like in today's climate, it is the outsiders who have the inside track. Yeah. Um, and as a matter of fact, both your opponents for the uh, nomination for the Republican nomination for Senate have kind of leaned into that outsider mentality. Uh, Moreno, Bernie Moreno, in fact, has has tried to cast you in a negative light as the career politician. How do you counter that? First of all, it's hilarious. People can say whatever they want. I'm the only guy in the race who's not an elite. I'm, a, I'm the only one in the race who's not a millionaire. In fact, uh, Lauren and I are thousandaires. I'm an army sergeant who decided to run for office a couple years ago. If there's anybody that has the DC connections, it's really my, my two opponents. And, and listen, uh, people can try to reinvent their records. Um, I'm proud of mine. I don't have to reinvent it. I'm a, con- a, a credentialed conservative, a battle-tested conservative. I've proven that I'm going to go to D.C. and fight for our values. It's not enough for us to send somebody to D.C. who says they're a conservative. It's it, it, it's essential if we're going to put this country back on track that we send somebody that we know will fight for our values. I'm the only one in this race who's a lifelong Republican. Both of my candidates, uh, both of my opponents, uh, the other two candidates have uh, been registered Democrats at some point in the past. I've never been. I'm the only one with a 100% pro-life voting record, the only one with a 100% voting record on gun rights, on cutting taxes. And so, you know, if there's anybody in this race who's the outsider, it's the youngest candidate who's 44 years old, who uh, lives in an 1800 square foot house and raises three children along with his wife. And and that's who I am. And and that's why I think that the people of Ohio uh, are going to be looking for uh, that 
proven, tested conservative who they know is going to go fight for their values. We mentioned uh, Bernie Moreno. He, of course, uh, recently picked up uh, the endorsement of former President Trump. Uh, despite the fact Mr. Trump endorsed you for the position you now hold, obviously we saw what that endorsement did for J.D. Vance last Senate race. Can you win without a Trump endorsement? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. In fact, uh, I'm I'm proud that I was the only secretary of state in America to earn President Trump's endorsement. I think that says something about how honest Ohio's elections are. And I earned that endorsement from him in 2022 when I was running for reelection. Listen, this is a three-way Republican primary. Last year, or two two, two years ago in 2022, there was a seven-way Republican primary. Uh, President Trump's endorsement uh, moves the needle for some people, but not for others. Um, I'm somebody that supports the president's policies and believes that the America First agenda is what's best for this country. But I don't think a lot of voters are going to necessarily make their voting decision in a primary based on who was endorsed by by whom. Uh, I, and, and that's that's what it comes down to. I, I am curious, uh, because your two opponents are largely self-funding their yeah. campaigns, you mentioned uh, that they have the uh, resources to do that. Uh, you are taking the more conventional path, as it were, in terms of fundraising. Does that put you at a disadvantage in any way? Yeah, it's funny. It's kind of a, a, a David and Goliath story, right? If if you if you look at uh, financially, I may be I may be David, right? Uh, the, but remember, David wins it with a stone, uh, <laughs> and I'm gathering a lot of stones right now. We've raised over three million dollars. There's a very well funded super PAC that's supporting me as well. And, um, you know, I I think it's important to also point out that although I may be David with the fundraising, I'm Goliath when it comes to polling, because even though my opponents have spent millions of dollars, really, they've spent about $3 million each running television ads. I haven't run a single ad yet. We will be soon. But I still lead in the polls. So all of their big spending is not really moving the numbers. And I continue to have a really a double digit lead in the Republican primary polling because Ohioans know me and they know that I'm going to go fight for their values. You know that this is one of the most closely watched Senate races in the country uh, and will be even more so when we get toward the general uh, this fall. A lot of people say that Senator Brown is more vulnerable than he's ever been, although they have said that before. Assuming that you do get the nomination, how do you defeat a an, an incumbent who has shown a remarkable ability to hold on to his seat, despite the fact that Ohio is becoming more and more a reliably red state? Well, first, we have to go back a step. It's crucial that the right candidate wins the primary so that we can win the general. I'm the one that can actually beat Sherrod Brown. You only need to, if you're one of the dozens of people that still reads the editorial pages of the newspaper, you can see that the liberal establishment in Ohio has decided that I'm the most dangerous weapon against their buddy, Sherrod Brown. So they're attacking me left and right. They know that I'm the one that has the wherewithal to beat Brown. And you're right. The nation is watching because this is the seat we have to win to take back the Senate majority. If Ohio elects a credentialed conservative in the primary, we can beat Sherrod Brown and we can do it by exposing what I call Sherrod's charade. This idea that he's some sort of working class Democrat is absolute nonsense. The man's been in office for 48 years. I've been alive for 44 years. And so it's time for Sherrod to go with the right candidate who can reach voters uh, and who voters know and who has the credentials to, to prove that they're a real conservative and to call Sherrod out for his nonsense, for standing with the Biden administration on all of the bad things they've done. It doesn't make sense that the most liberal member of the U.S. Senate represents Ohio. We're going to call that out and we're going to beat Sherrod Brown this November. And that's why I'm asking for folks to uh, to vote for me for this important office. 
do want to ask you a couple of questions relating to your current job as Secretary of State, as Ohio's top election official. You have been critical of a ballot initiative that would put a so-called voters' bill of rights in the state constitution. The Attorney General, I think it was last week, rejected the proposal that had been submitted for consideration. In December, uh, you said, and this is the quote, this is a political Trojan horse designed to make elections easier to steal, and they're dishonestly doing it under the name of security and fairness, unquote. What specifically do you oppose in this proposal? Yeah, so this is why it was um, such an important effort to try to uh, raise the threshold for passing constitutional amendments, because this is just one of many bad ideas that's coming to Ohio. I've been warning about this for a while. In fact, in Michigan, just five years ago, they passed something very similar. They called it the Voter Bill of Rights. This effort, they call secure and fair elections. You can tell when the Democrats name something, it probably does the opposite, because what this would do is make elections less secure and less fair. It would create same-day voter registration where somebody could walk into a board of elections with no proof and just say, hey, here's my name, here's my address, now give me a ballot, not even having time to check them. It would take away our ability to do what we do now, which is removing deceased voters from the voter rolls, removing those who move out of state from the voter rolls, maintaining the accuracy of our voter rolls. It would take away our ability to check IDs. Uh, I mean, these are some of the things that Ohio has done over the years that make us a state where it's both easy to vote and hard to cheat things that we want. And this effort by the left to undermine that is something Ohioans should reject uh, wholeheartedly. And and, and that's why I've been uh, calling this out. This is a dangerous proposal, just one of many. There are efforts to try to get rid of qualified immunity that protects law enforcement. There's efforts to put livestock care standards in that would make it impossible to run a farm in Ohio. There's all kinds of bad left Uh, leftist ideas from the East Coast and the West Coast that are coming to Ohio in the form of constitutional amendments, and Ohioans need to be ready to fight them. This is just one of those. One final uh, question about the subject of elections in Ohio. There, as you know, there are challenges to Donald Trump's eligibility to appear on the presidential ballot in at least, I believe, 34 states, maybe even more now. Uh, Colorado and Maine have uh, disqualified him in, in those states. Uh, challenges in other states have been dismissed, including Michigan has rejected uh, that challenge. So number of states going in different directions here. Are you aware of any effort to exclude the former president in Ohio? And how yeah. would that look in this state? Oh, they've tried. And, and it's important to, to look at their motivations. Just like I told you, the Democrats are attacking me because they believe I'm the most dangerous weapon against Sherrod Brown. The Democrats are attacking President Trump because they want desperately to do anything they can to keep him from being the nominee because they know that he'll defeat Joe Biden and that he will work to put this country back on track. They've already tried it in Ohio. Uh, They sent a letter to me saying that we should use the 14th Amendment to keep Trump off the ballot. I sent them a very terse response, as you can imagine. I said, it's up to the voters to decide this, to invoke a Civil War era, a Reconstruction era constitutional amendment that was put in place to prevent Confederate soldiers from becoming members of Congress, effectively, Mm -hmm. to try to somehow invoke that to prevent President Trump from being on the ballot is the height of foolishness. It's desperate. I entered a amicus brief in the Colorado case calling this out for the kind of political gamesmanship that it is. Um, Colorado made the wrong decision. I believe that the U.S. Supreme Court will put an end to all of this. It it is uh, certainly what most people expect for this whole whole thing to become a moot point uh, if the uh, U.S. Supreme Court takes the issue up and uh, makes the uh, final decision. But logistically, I'm just curious, uh, obviously in Colorado, it was a decision of the state Supreme Court there. In Maine, it was the Secretary of State, your counterpart uh, in Maine, that made the decision. Would I that believe fall, an unlawful decision on her part. Would that, yeah. 
Well, that, that's what I was going to say. Is would that fall on your shoulders, or that have to come from the Supreme Court? Were to it? Uh, this is why it's important that we have a smart conservative Secretary of State, and why I was overwhelmingly reelected in 2022 with more votes than anybody's ever gotten in the history of the office. Ohioans want a thoughtful conservative Secretary of State, and that's what they've got. And that's why I I turned them back and I said we're not going to do that in Ohio. If somebody wanted to file a legal challenge, I suppose they could do that. This is why it's important that we elect good judges and justices as well. But just next week, I'm going to be putting uh, uh, putting out the list uh, of who's going to be on the ballot. Uh, our, our boards of elections have been uh, scrutinizing those signatures. Our office has been consolidating all of that. In fact, I was on a conference call with our team this morning on my drive up to Finley uh, about that matter. And so we're going to be annex- announcing next week who has qualified for the ballot. Um, not to break any news here, but I can predict that Donald Trump will be one of the Republican candidates who is definitely going to be on the ballot uh, in our March primary. There we go. Um, again, the the work continues in your current job. Campaign t- continues uh, for the Senate Secretary of State, Senate candidate Frank LaRose with us uh, in the studio today. Thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate hey, the time. Thank you so much. Hope folks will consider voting for me and visit franklarose.com for more information. So as you uh, probably heard last week, uh, Flag City Honor Flight announced another busy year planned for 2024. Director Bob Weinberg is with us in the studio this morning. And uh, Bob, four flights uh, once again this year. This was the uh, similar schedule to uh, last year. So uh, I know I remember last year talking with you and saying, you know, we're going to be able to pull this off for four because it was the first time. Oh, it was. So. It was the first time we did four, and we, and we pulled it off. <laughs> so it worked well. We decided to do it again. And and I kind of uh, mentioned in the in the lead up, uh, it seems like uh, the community has always been very generous in their financial uh, support. And I know fundraising is always you know a big a big thing. Uh, but this is Hunter Flight's pretty easy sell to folks. I it mean, is. when you go and you say this is you know the mission to take veterans to the to dc to see the memorials in their honor i mean that's a that's a pretty easy yeah it's a pretty good script yeah you know it's it's good to to work that uh obviously money is very important to us Mm -hmm. and four flights our budget is over four hundred thousand dollars this year that's i was going to say how much does it take to put together a flight yeah it it, yes it's uh between probably a hundred and four hundred and ten thousand for each flight wow the aircraft alone is in seventy thousand dollar range just Mm -hmm. for the charter aircraft so all the meals and buses and all those things is that the what is the biggest uh the biggest challenge in in putting these together and i know you're no longer the the flight director so you're not the Mm -hmm. man who's in charge of doing Doing all of this uh but you have been in the past what is Mm -hmm. the what is the biggest uh part that that is the most complicated in organizing is it the aircraft itself or you know the aircraft's probably the easiest part (laughs) (laughs) so the the basics having the buses and having the aircraft and having those dates uh the changing of the guard at arlington national cemetery which is one of the things that we want to do and and feel it's necessary to do Mm -hmm. Uh, those three events is usually the things that set our dates if we can get the aircraft we can get the buses we can get the the appointment time at Arlington will will set the timing and the dates. I think the most demanding uh, for those folks in in our organization, the board members that are doing this, is actually getting the veterans and guardians on the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're now talking about servicing somewhere uh, in the number of around three hundred. We're going we're g- 
raising the number uh, to maybe 95, 90 to 95 veterans per flight instead of that 80, 85. Mm-hmm. Um, so just more things to do in lining that up. And it, yeah. it takes a lot of man hours to make those phone calls and get that to happen. Yeah, uh, I can imagine so. So when you talk about putting four, four flights together, because initially you think, oh, four flights in a year, you're talking one every three months, uh, basically. I mean, that doesn't sound all that complicated, but a lot goes into making this happen behind the scenes. So. Yes, it's all timing. First, you have to notify those veterans and make sure that they uh, still want to fly. They, we have these applications. And have uh, the ability to. And the ability to. And what are their ailments? Uh, mm-hmm. Because uh, you know none of them are, are young anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, so do they need oxygen? Uh, uh, what kind of medical care do they need? Wheelchairs, that type of thing. Uh, but then once we have them on board, then it's the paperwork that we need from them that, and, and then there's the guardians to match up to those veterans. So mm-hmm. it's, it, it just takes time to do that. So currently we're actually filling, uh, calling and filling the April flight uh, right now. We're doing that in January so that in February we can get the uh, guardians lined up. Mm-hmm. And by March we have all the paperwork and ready to close that door. Yeah, that's the other thing that we were mentioning. While the community has been very generous in their financial support, uh, you also need a lot of volunteers to make that happen. And this is, uh, I know, always something that you're out looking for volunteers who can be guardians on these flights. We do. Uh, we're doing four flights because we have a backlog of veterans. And we're trying to, a lot of Vietnam guys that we're trying to get on, on these planes. And that list is narrowing. And with four flights this year, it's really going to get more current. Uh, but we are one-on-one. So for every veteran, we're also attaching to his hip a guardian and uh, and that number there's no backlog there so we're always looking for those volunteers to come out and get on board and and be a part of the flight what is involved in being a volunteer guardian for an honor flight uh basically health you know being in in good, good enough health to be able to take care of someone else for that day mm-hmm. um it's very easy to do with with any volunteer guardian or a veteran it's flightcityhonorflight.org they can fill out that form. Uh, we're going to give them a call, the guardians a call, and find out some some information as far as how physically fit they are because you're either going to be walking with a veteran or you may be pushing a wheelchair for the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's actually miles of pushing a wheelchair from yeah. from uh, World War II to Vietnam Wall is nine-tenths of a mile yeah. and back. So, mm-hmm. you know, now you got a, you got a couple miles involved there. So it's a, it's a busy day. Um, and you have to have the health to be able to take care of that person. And, but it is one of the most rewarding things. That, oh, that it's life changing. <laughs> I've talked to a number of folks who have been guardians on these uh, flights in the past, and uh, they invariably, uh, to a man, will all say they were they were very moved by that experience. Yes, it's it's life changing, not only for the veteran, but for all those involved, because. We, we do have family members that are guardians. We allow that, that to happen, but a lot of folks aren't family members. They just volunteer to do it, and, and they, they now have a newest best friend, and that's that veteran. And that goes on beyond that flight, too, with birthday cards and Christmas gifts and, mm. and those types of things. Yeah. But, but you find out what that person did. Not just what that person did in the military, but also what their life was like before and after mm-hmm. World War II, Korea, Vietnam. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that in some cases it is 
uh, a family member or a friend, somebody that in, that one of the the uh, veterans knows, an individual that they know who serve as their guardian, and that is terrific. But uh, more often than not, uh, it's uh, just somebody that you have put together with That's that, correct. that That's uh, correct. veteran. Yep. And our new system that we have, we started uh, uh, this last year, we have a new computer system that matches people up also. So, mm-hmm. for instance, if you're a Vietnam veteran and you served with someone that you know well and lives in the area, wants to be on Honor Flight 2, we can actually match those two veterans up to go on that same flight. Mm. But if there's a guardian that wants to be with those folks, with that particular veteran, we can match those two up also through our computer system so that there's a buddy system and then there's also the the, the, the marriage between the, the guardian and the veteran early in the stages. Mm. So when that time comes to fly, they're together. That is not required, though. You, no, not at you all. You don't have to know a veteran or be related mm. to a veteran who is going no. uh, on one of these flights. How do, because that really is where you are now or will be very soon trying to put those, match all of those uh, veterans up with the uh, guardians. What does it take to start that process and what is involved, what is expected of the uh, of the guardians? Uh, we have a guardian training session the Sunday before each flight. We always fly on a Tuesday. It just makes sense to us to do that. So the Sunday before we have a mandatory uh, two and a half, three hour uh, training session for the guardians so they can understand what they're they're going to do that day they actually get some things that they'll need for that day mm-hmm. uh, and veterans during that training session um, the easy part is going on flagcityhonorflight.org and pressing a button i want to be a a guardian and fill out that form that that's really all it takes and again uh whether whether you can go on this next uh, flight in in April or you know later in the year or or next year you know or next year you're always it's always good to have a bank of folks that you know you know that you can call on absolutely we we have what we call season uh, guardians they've done it before mm-hmm. and there are uh, repeats people that want to come on we do ask which speaks to how uh, dramatic and how fulfilling yeah. you know doing this is they yeah. want to do it more than once so. and it's a reason for not having all family uh guardians also when we can get the outside public to get involved mm-hmm. uh hate to say that this way but we also get money that way well, sure <laughs> because sure. people Absolutely. get people find out what the mission is and understand what that mission is and when it's heartfelt uh, they want to do more. Yeah. And we've also mentioned that, you know, back in a few years ago, and I, I don't even know how many years we've been flying people now. I mean, started, we chartered in 10, uh, 2010. Uh, so, yeah, our, yeah. Yeah. So 13 years. But back uh, back then, there were a number of honor flight uh, chapters uh, around the area. Mm-hmm. And the Flag City Honor Flight is uh, pretty much the one of the last ones in our area that's that remains. So this is more than just for Flag City, Findlay, USA. Right. So we do uh, right now. Currently, there's a, probably a, I think around 130 hubs throughout the United States, which involves Hawaii and Alaska. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Ohio, we have five hubs, but we are pretty much Northwest Ohio now. There's one in Columbus and and Dayton. There's Cincinnati and Cleveland. But for our area, uh, yeah. which goes to the, you know, we don't have borders in Honor Flight. Right. Our mission with all the Honor Flights is to take as many veterans as we can. Uh, so there's a Fort Wayne, Indiana uh, Honor Flight hub also. But we're take our area is Northwest Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, we pick up some Southeast Michigan also. Uh, be, 
because a lot of our news, television news, comes out of Toledo. Toledo. So yeah. the Monroe's, even Detroit is, we're Flight City Honor Flight. Yes, we're based out of Finley, Ohio, but we fly mm-hmm. out of Toledo Express. Yeah. So for for Detroit, we're 45 minutes away. Right. So, so uh, we'll reach out to those folks, too, and they'll, they'll come they'll from see all that. over. They'll mm-hmm. come from all over. And again, all deserving uh, of Absolutely. that trip to Washington, D.C., uh, to see the memorials in their honor. Like I said, it's pretty easy to see why this is important. Uh, you mentioned the website where folks can get more information if they want to uh, donate or if they want to, uh, most importantly, volunteer their time to be a guardian, and all it takes is a simple inquiry, right? That's correct. That's all That's all it takes. And we've got a link up on our webpage, goodmornings.net. For that, again, uh, Flag City Honor Flight Director Bob Weinberg with us this morning. Busy year in 2024 plan. Bob, thanks very much for dropping by. We Thank you. It. Always a pleasure. This is Good Mornings with Chris Hopes on 1330 WS. WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. How crazy is this? This is one of those world gone mad stories. A man in Pennsylvania says he had to pay a squatter $1,200 to leave his house after police told him that they could not intervene and... The court said a formal eviction could take more than six months. This is the story. Chris Hart got a call from his real estate agent not long ago uh, reporting that uh, neighbors had seen people taking down the for sale sign in front of his house and just moving in. (laughs) These people took down the sign and just moved into the house. The homeowner called police, but... After a brief investigation, officers said that the people at the house claimed to be renting it, even though Mr. Hart said, no, they're not renting it. They just moved in. Uh, But the cops said that there was nothing they could do Uh, because the story goes on to say because the suspects had squatters rights as soon as they moved into the house, the only way to get rid of them would to would be to file for an eviction. To remove the squatters, uh, filing the uh, court action, filing the suit uh, in court would cost 300 bucks just to file it, and it could take up to a year, according to court officials, to actually evict them from the home. He ultimately then decided to confront the squatters directly and ended up paying them $1,300 to leave And then it cost him about $700 to fix the damage that they had done to the house. (laughs) He actually had to pay the squatters to leave his own home. The world has just gone crazy. Nuts. Elsewhere in the broken news, police (laughs) arrested an Alabama man on Friday after he crashed his car outside of a Bass Pro Shop stripped naked, and leapt into the aquarium in the store. (laughs) Crashed his car, stripped down to his birthday suit, and jumped in the aquarium. Apparently, he was swimming around with the fishes in the store's aquarium for over five minutes. Um, Local authorities say the nude man first stood under the waterfall after making a cannonball jump into the water. Uh, This was, uh, according to the report from the uh, police chief, 
there in Leeds, Alabama, jumped into the cannonballed into the water, then stood under the waterfall, stark naked. The man eventually climbed out of the massive aquarium, shouted at two police officers before diving back in. He was uh, then arrested after his second exit from the aquarium and now faces charges of criminal mischief, public lewdness, and disorderly conduct. (laughs) Why do I get the feeling, and the report does not say, so I'm just speculating here, but I have the feeling that some sort of intoxicating substance might have been involved. I'm just guessing on that, but I think I'm safe in theorizing that maybe there was an intoxicating substance of some sort involved in that story. Uh, In Lexington, Kentucky, staff at a local Mexican restaurant want their Snoop Dogg statue back. Local news reports in Lexington say the statue was stolen from the inside entrance of Mi Mi Pequeña Hacienda right around noon on Wednesday in broad daylight. They stole the Snoop Dogg statue from the Mexican restaurant in broad daylight. The restaurant does say that they have the thief on surveillance video, so it's just a matter of time. But they're apparently not interested in prosecuting this individual. They just want their Snoop Dogg statue statue back. <laughs> My only question in this whole story, what is a Mexican restaurant doing with a statue of Snoop Dogg inside? That just seems odd decor for a Mexican restaurant. That's just me. It is Kentucky, though, so you never know. (laughs) In uh, California, El Monte, California, a man is accused of threatening to bomb a bank. But the circumstances are just weird, all kinds of weird. And Daniel Isaac Gonzalez allegedly sent a text message to a security guard at the uh, Cathay Bank in El Monte, California, threatening to bomb the bank where the guard was assigned at the time. Another security guard at the same bank received a similar text message later that same month. Um, Mr. Gonzalez was uh, arrested on charges including two counts of making a threat, uh, faces trial next month. It's just weird to text message a bomb threat. Can't those things be traced? Anyway, just weird. Texting two guards... When I first uh, read that story, I actually thought uh, that uh, this guy was uh, the security guard, and he was texting his coworkers. Apparently, that's not the case. Okay, well, it's still weird. It's weird. Um, a more airline fun. You heard the story about the uh, jet, uh, the Alaska Airlines jet that... Uh, what a sealed door had uh, blown out of the uh, jet. This happened over the weekend. They had to turn around and land in, uh, back in Portland. Fortunately, nobody injured. A JetBlue flight bound from Fort Lauderdale to Boston had to make an unplanned stop in Orlando last week because of a disturbance by a passenger who claimed to be the devil. Oh, that's always fun. Uh, <laughs> passengers say the man was making threats and started striking the woman that he was traveling with. Uh, flight attendants stowed her in the lavatory so that he couldn't get to her, but he began then banging on the bathroom door 
to try and get to her. The unruly passenger was taken into custody in Orlando, and the other passengers had to exit the plane and then wait for a new crew. It was a whole mess. The flight then resumed, and the plane finally landed in Boston uh, several hours late. But uh, (laughs) claimed to be the devil. He claimed to be the devil on a flight from Fort Lauderdale to Boston. Crazy. And finally, in the broken news this morning, the odd and unusual side of the headlines, we are happy to report that apparently there are, in fact, no aliens in Miami. Uh, At least in downtown Miami, there are no aliens. uh, Rumors that there were aliens at the Bayside Marketplace in downtown Miami went viral on social media after a large fight involving 50 juveniles drew a heavy police presence to the area last week. Many online conspiracy theorists suggested that the police weren't there to handle the unruly teenagers, but rather they were there to, uh, in response to reports of 8 to 10 foot tall shadow aliens. Yes, that's, that's what it had to be. 8 to 10 foot shadow aliens. And apparently this caught fire on social media. Officer Michael Vega with the Miami police had to uh, actually make a public statement reiterating that there were no aliens. There were no UFOs, there were no ETs, no airports were closed, and no power outages occurred. This all is what people were believing, apparently, on social media. The phrases Miami Mall and Aliens in Miami were among the top ten searches, trending searches, on X, formerly Twitter, uh, this past Friday. All because... These reports. I'm happy to say that no, there are no aliens in downtown Miami. Maybe other parts of Miami, but not downtown. They <laughs> there, there you go. Uh, that is today's broken news report. An update of the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Did you know more than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for their news, traffic, weather, sports, and a community connection? AM radio is the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping Americans safe in dangerous times. This is News Director Matt Demchek. AM 1330 WFIN is here to serve you, and we take seriously our commitment to our listeners. We would love to hear what you value most about AM radio. Visit wearebroadcasters.com and tell us how you depend on AM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Apparently, the rebel spirit is alive and well in America, and we are all the better for it. According to a new survey commissioned by Rebellious Wines, 74% of Gen Zers and 52% of Millennials say they live their life in a rebellious fashion. Gen Zers tend to say breaking rules and conventions led to positive changes in their self-confidence. And millennials say embracing their rebellious side helps them feel part of something greater than themselves. Overall, 52% of Americans say professional growth stems from taking chances. And 57% say being rebellious is a skill, not an attitude. I would suggest that it's probably a little bit of both, don't you think? (music) 
into the new year, and they are hitting the ground running in 4-H. Uh, Hancock County OSU Extension 4-H educator uh, Lauren Berner kitzler is with us uh, this morning with a rundown of what's happening in 4-H right now. And I guess the uh, big thing is uh, gearing up for the, the new year. Enrollment uh, for both uh, folks who want to participate and for advisors and all of that. You're looking to just put all of this together right now. Yep, absolutely. So good morning, listeners. So um, like you said, Chris, the 4-H year has started. It is underway <laughs> and it is off and running. So the first couple of things that we have coming up is for our advisors. Um, we are going to be bringing on 13 new advisors for the 2024 year. So that's super exciting. Um, but all of those advisors obviously have to go through some trainings and some courses um, to make sure they are um promoting the proper information, sharing the right projects. So mm-hmm. those two um, big trainings for our advisors are coming up on January 20th and January 24th, specifically just for our volunteers and our advisors. Okay, so is there still time? Do you do you still need folks to sign up for uh, to be advisors or, you know, to help out in that so way? We're always or? looking for volunteers to help kind of here and there. For When it comes to our advisors for our club, actually that is open during November 1 to January 2nd. Okay. We'd like to make sure our advisors are in kind of the first of the year, ready to go. And that way we have them through all those trainings have, to kick off yeah, the year. Time to plan the trainings yep, and all of that. Yeah. Uh, but you mentioned that there are opportunities uh, for those who maybe what have a, have a skill to share or something that they can, they can offer to the various 4-H groups. Yep. So we're always looking for volunteers that if they have a niche in something, whether that's sewing, whether that's mowing the yard, whether that's gardening, we're always looking for those volunteers to kind of help guide and mentor our 4-H kiddos that take those projects. Okay. So what is involved in that, uh, in, in volunteering in that way? Um, so that would just be reaching out to our office and we would put you in contact with those members. Um, we do have a sewing club. So Joyce Schroeder actually oversees our sewing clinics. Um, we have different types of woodworkings, um, not necessarily a club, but they do meet often and kind of help mentor um, for our shooting sports kiddos. Okay. Bruce and Tish Sampson um, oversee all of our shooting sports uh, 4-H members, making sure they're meeting those requirements, filling out that project book. So okay. um, contact our office if you're interested. So those are a couple of examples, but uh, there are a- any number of different fields that 4-H uh, participants will explore. So chances are good there might be something that would fit your skill Yep, level. absolutely. So there are so many projects within 4-H, so we're always looking for those volunteers and those helpers with those 4-H members. So just contact our office, and we will put you in route um, and where we see fit. See, uh, simple as that. Uh, for those who would like to participate, uh, is that uh, open or is that closed? Nope, uh, so now. that is open, and it'll okay. run until April 1st. Okay. So 4-H projects, students can go into our online system. If they are if they are new, they'll want to reach out to our office, and we want to make sure we connect them to a 4-H club within their school district. Um, that is how we kind of organize our 4-H clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, but those members that are returning, um, they'll just go back into our online 4-H system and pick which project is of interest to them. And then, of course, always let your 4-H advisor know. Um, that is open until um, April 1st. Okay. Anyone can do that. April 1st. And we have talked about this uh, in the past, but it bears repeating. This is not just a uh, an organization or a club for uh, rural youth. Oh, God. No, it is not just for, yeah. for rural, um, those that live in the country. It is so much more than that. Um, we are actually have our program assistant going into schools to help promote 4-H to gain more interest um, because – like I said, 4-H has so much to offer, and it's not just um, animals at the fair. You know, it mm-hmm. is sewing, it is the woodworking, it is the mowing the yard, it is um, 
You've leaned in quite a bit to uh, STEM subjects uh, in recent yes, years. Yes, that is our next up and big up and coming thing. Um, a lot of robotics. So we have two new robotics coming down the line for 2024 here. So, and we have the STEM kit that is actually in our office. So if those members take those projects, they rent out that kit for a certain period of time. They complete that project, whether that's building the robot, the Legos. There's so much when it comes into STEM. Wow. That's a big, that's, very up and coming. That's pretty cool. If you've got project. some, if you've got some, uh, uh, some free time with that, I, I'd be interested. Okay. In yes, we uh, <laughs> we actually robotic, received a I'll grant. Take robotic hit, get home. That's pretty cool. We actually received a <laughs> grant, and they're called RVR cars, and they are robotic cars that you can connect with an iPad. Um, and our, like I said, our 4-H program assistant has been going into our schools, <laughs> awesome. sharing that because. The technology is the new up-and-coming thing, yeah. whether it's farming, whether it's right here on the radio station, sure. you know, um, knowing yeah. the ins and outs of all of that. So yeah. super important for our members. Uh, it is a, a long way removed from the origins of, you know, learning about the animals on the farm and sowing and, you know, all of those. Those are still part of it, but so many. So much more. So much more. So much more. So, much more. Uh, so if uh, someone is interested in signing up or their kids uh, express an interest in signing up or have an interest in one of these fields, this is a good way to channel that and, and help them learn more what's involved in signing up. Yep. Um, so you can just come into our office. We will, like I said, we pair our 4-H members with the club of their within the location of their school district. So if you are in Liberty Benton School District, we're going to pair you with one of our three 4-H clubs that are in the Liberty Benton area. Okay. Um, we do this so we make sure members are not having to drive clear across the county to right. attend a 4-H meeting. Um, but if you have interest in any 4-H project, you are more than welcome to come into our office. We can show you a little snippet of that project. So if it is something STEM related, we can show you the Lego kit that we have or the robot that we have. Um, if it's something more along the like tractor safety, we can show you that tractor safety project book, okay. kind of see if that is of interest to you. Because of course, we always want to know, we want to share it and let you know of everything that's involved before fully committing if that's something right. of your interest. So. Yeah. Uh, so reach out to the uh, 4-H office for uh, more <laughs> yeah. details on that. Also, one of the other big things that you do every year, would be happening a little bit earlier this year, I understand, is the uh, benefit auction. Yep. Right? So normally our benefit auction is held in April, but because... Of the We've st- got a little thing going on, on in April. We do. Wait, okay. something that's actually going to impact our county a lot more than I think some people are thinking, but it's going to be great. It's going to be a good time. Um, but we are actually moving our benefit auction dinner to February because of the solar eclipse that's going to be happening this okay. year. Okay. So uh, give us all of the details on yep, this. Yep, so that right information, um, that benefit auction dinner is going to be taking place Saturday, February 17th at the Hancock County Fairgrounds. Tickets are going to be $30. You can purchase your ticket at our office, the OSU Extension Office here in Hancock County for $30. Doors will open at 5. Dinner will be served at 6 over a nice catered meal. And then we will have, of course, our live auction to follow. So it's just a good community night. You do not have to be affiliated with 4-H to attend this. We are always looking for more sponsors, donors, more involvement as we would like to grow the 4-H program. Very good. And those tickets are on sale now? Correct. Yep. You can walk on in and pick as many tickets as you like. You can also reserve a table if you'd like to sit with your family we also make those reservations as well so a great dinner and a great fundraiser for a terrific uh, resource terrific program uh, in the community and again reaching out to the osu extension office the easiest way to uh, score those tickets yep absolutely very good we've got the uh, link up on our webpage for a lot more information what's going on as we uh, head into a new year from uh, the hancock county 4-h program Again, uh, Lauren Berner kitzler with us from uh, Hancock County OSU Extension. Thanks very much for dropping by. Happy New Year. Yes, thank you. Have a great day, listeners.
And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program, of course. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics every day on the show at our webpage, that, of course, goodmornings.net. We invite you to check us out online. Coming up tomorrow morning on the program, what is your New Year's resolution? We'll let you know about Blanchard Valley Health System's smoking cessation services. For anyone looking to finally kick the habit. And it's another year of fun for all from the Community Foundation. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.